0: Y'all ain't ready for this conversation.
1: Luke and Matthew to another exciting episode of Whiskey and Words. Tonight uh, we have a menu that features uh, the review of Catch-22 and also uh, a fantastic whiskey, uh, Cardu Gold Reserve uh, Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Uh, So let's begin. Uh, I'm going to hand you over to uh, Matthew who's going to... Revel us uh, with the synopsis for tonight's whiskey.
2: Okay, so this is a Scotch whiskey. Before I go on, everyone have a sip.
1: We add only one sip, or... is (laughs) Only one sip.
2: Okay. Okay, now... See if you can guess Mm. any of the flavours. Luke, you first. Whiskey. <laughs> you are right. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> One point to Luke.
1: <laughs> I'm going to go with vanilla.
2: Vanilla. Okay. Okay. So for the nose, it's uh, honey tinned stones fruits. Oh uh, God. Yes. Stone fruits. Fruit. What is that? Well, imagine a peach. Oh, a that makes
1: sense. It. Actually. Yeah. Uh, unstoned fruit would be an, uh, yeah, it would be an apple, I suppose. Cause it just has seeds, not a stone. But it's um, tinned that, fruits. Oh, is it tinned fruits? Oh, yeah, stoned, honeyed. Tinned 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 oh,
0: honeyed stone. as well. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I've ever come across that, just generally. Honeyed, S- tinned, stone sweet, the fruits. Well, obviously,
2: we if we were connoisseurs, we would have. <laughs> We'd be <laughs> buying honeyed, yeah. tinned, stone mm-hmm. fruits all the time. Maybe well, it's, it's, not it's something to add to the, yeah,
1: the whiskey diction, isn't it? <laughs> okay, Sorry,
2: next one. Apart from that, uh, in the nose, you've got the toffees and a hint of strawberry with red apple and ginger coming through with a little water, whatever that means. And now onto the palate, the taste. Fairly dry with biscuity oak. Sorry, can I stop you there?
0: We were meant to smell water in that. that, is what (laughs) it was saying. (laughs) With a hint of water. We're meant to be able to detect.
1: I mean, it's very gentle, I suppose. You know, in comparison to some of them who are very much, they emanate a scent, this... I, I think it's pretty neutral. I think I smell
0: 60% water. What about you guys? I honestly thought you were about to snort that. Would I snort 60% water? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, okay, carrying on with the palate. Uh, biscuity oak, um, which I'm a bit confused about how oak can be biscuity. But carrying on, and a little little bit of cinnamon, as well as some developed for those toffee and apple notes. Okay, we should definitely go back to biscuity oak. (laughs) Okay, so imagine you're making (laughs) biscuits in an oak oven. Very dangerous, but this is the sort of flavour I'm imagining. That's the sort of (laughs) flavour.
0: So is it that, because then you'd get oak-infused biscuits, or is it that it's a bit of oak that you're chewing down on with, you know, digestive sprinkled on top? Which which way round are we seeing this?
2: Well, I think out of those two options, the most believable is an oven made out of oak. You know, it's maybe got two uses until the whole thing catches fire. No,
1: I, I see it kind of. The biscuity flavour is is an it's an actual oak tree. It's you're you're kind of getting that nugget of oak in the in the taste.
2: Well, maybe for some of these oak tasters in the past, things were desperate and they were yeah you know eating. They were bacon.
1: barking mad. <laughs>
2: oh, oh okay we are carry on <laughs> please <the> leave <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> <laughs> carrying on to the finish gentle oak and milk chocolate caramel digestives actually whoever's written uh, written this has got an obsession with digestives um probably so, floyd has a few things to say about that does it
0: actually say milk chocolate, milk, chocolate caramel, caramel digestives <laughs>
2: Actually, I'm just going to go for the very brief description on the back of the packet rather than, <laughs> rather than this. Uh, this is a lot more straight to the straight to the uh, the notes. Okay, so here it says. Da, 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 da. What about chocolate? Okay. I suppose we've already covered silk that. Uh, maturation enriches the silky smooth spice-side character. Spice-side? Ever heard of that word before?
1: Yeah, I feel it's like a region in Scotland.
2: Okay, side character of Cardu, with deeper flavours of dark chocolate and a ripe orchard fruit, to yield a beautiful balance and depth.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't couldn't have given a better summary myself. Yeah, (laughs) that sounds a
0: lot more sensible than gentle oak, biscuity oak, aggressive oak.
1: But anyway, what are people's general thoughts of this bad boy? That's
2: that catchphrase. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a bad boy. It's a. Uh, it's more it's, of a. It's a very smooth. Ball, mm, yeah,
1: yeah. He's a suckler, isn't he? <laughs> it has Suckers. got a bit of a.
0: You know what? The kind of gingeriness it mentioned. I'm getting a bit of that in terms of the mouth heat and the. I don't know how to describe it.
2: It's but not I, peaty. I am,
0: it's definitely not no. peaty.
1: <laughs> it's very smooth, but there isn't. I wouldn't. I would say there's not that kind of rich flavour. That you know, for example, the smokehead had. Uh,
0: That was was, beyond rich That was very complimentary I think think he's taking payments from Smokehead (laughs) (laughs) I've never
2: put so much ice In my whiskey As I did for Smokehead (laughs) (laughs) By the time I drank it It was probably at 15% alcoholic
0: (laughs) Wasn't that how uh, Churchill drank his whiskeys You know everybody thought he was a massive alcoholic And he was only Apparently uh, all he did was Fill it up enough to cover the bottom of the glass And then would fill it with water and it was more like a tonic. He learned it in his army days.
1: But didn't he have that for breakfast?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 50 times a day. But. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, how that guy kept going is a wonder to all of us.
0: Yeah. I remember hearing once about how. There's, so there's this story that Churchill, every lunch, would drink a bottle of champagne. And obviously, people thought that was ludicrous. But apparently it was the old imperial bottle of champagne, which is only half the size. Uh, okay. And they were saying this as in, oh, so he wasn't an alcoholic, he was just casually drinking. <laughs> and I thought, that's still half a bottle of champagne with lunch. <laughs> that's still half a bottle of champagne more than I do with lunch.
2: What's interesting about the imperial units is as it's not completely standardised imperial units. So, for example, in America they talk about an imperial pint of beer. And we talk about an imperial pint of beer, but they're too they're two different
1: sizes. Mm. Okay. So how how did the differentiation of Imperial was it just like Oh you
2: say a certain type of Imperial and they say a set of a certain type of Imperial.
1: Okay, so Imperial mm. is just like my country says this.
2: Yeah, but I, I think there's two standardized Imperial units which are different, but that's all I know of. There might be other be other Imperial units. But thank God a metric came along to be quite honest. Thank God we've got an engineer here to explain yeah. <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. so much clearer on the topic now. <laughs> uh, okay,
1: I think that that, that uh, ends us there very nicely. Uh, we'll pass you on to Luke who is going to give us our book introduction.
0: Yes, yes, I am. Quite a difficult one to introduce, I feel. I, th- I think everyone here would agree. So at the, the core of the book, it's a story about a World War II bombardier called Usarian, who is based off the coast of Italy towards the end of the war. Um, And the story follows essentially his, you know, descent into disillusionment with the military, with his attempts to escape the war and with the numerous, numerous characters that he comes across in the story. But I think what makes it very difficult to summarise and will probably make it quite challenging for us to analyse as well is, one, there's just an um, absolute plethora of characters involved in the story. I mean, an almost uncountable amount of characters, each with a lot of complexity behind them and certainly each with their own dimensions of personality. And then also the is chronologically a uh, complete mess. It, it's very much... Broken up. There's no linear fashion to it. It keeps on chopping and changing back and forth. You cover the same events that have happened more than once throughout the book um, from different perspectives as well. So it makes it very difficult to summarize. But I think ultimately, it's it's a book about the much broader themes it touches on about war, about proxy about morality, about. You know, about um, emotive response to situations as well. Uh, I've got that. I must admit, I,
1: I think this was a deft task. Uh, anyone who has to summarise this book, because it doesn't follow any linear narrative that I think I've ever been used to.
2: Just to give you an idea of how many characters there are, uh, to help myself, I wrote a paragraph on each character, and I've got six... No, seven sides of A4 here, <laughs> just to show how many... Not main characters, but characters have their own chapters dedicated well
1: i think that there's what 40 chapters isn't there something close to that over over, I over think 40. It's, yeah i
0: think it's close to 50
1: and i would say 90 um, percent of those chapters are named after a character that features in
0: the book yeah exactly
1: and they are the main characters they're still subshoot characters who feed off those main characters so yeah it's um i mean that actually feeds us very nicely into our first question of the evening and this comes from matthew and so his question is, uh, why do we think uh, Joseph Heller used the structure he did?
2: OK, so just give a bit of background to this. Um, it's, this book, is, the main character is Yserian, but of course it follows a lot of other characters. Uh, but to show maybe the descent of Yossarian to into insanity, or to show his real personal feelings, for me it made sense that the book was written in first person. Now of course that makes it difficult to re- uh to introduce a huge amount of other characters. Uh but I want to hear what you guys have to say about this just this sort of structure of it being written in the third person.
0: Mm. I I I went into a bit of a deep dive on this because I think it could either be Isarian's consciousness as the overriding narrative. Or alternatively, fitting in with the book, it could almost be a bit of a godlike figure because faith is questioned throughout the book at numerous points and the narrator is someone who is kind of omnipresent, you know, omniscient about the feelings of the characters, about the thoughts of the characters. And so for me, it's a really difficult one to place as to why he did it. I think he had to do it. It'll structure it in that way, or, or approach it from that way, in order to, you know, give all the characters the depth they need, and not just have it focused on Yusarian as potentially an unreliable narrator, you know, questioning the motives of other characters. The way he does it, you understand the motives of every single character it touches upon, and that adds to their complexity. But I, it, I I'm still not settled on an answer to that question, if I'm honest. The only th- thing
1: that I would add to that is. I definitely feel that the structure and the format and the way it's written adds to this sense of chaos uh, Mm. that as the uh, reader you are presented with. And I feel like that is, that's something that he's purposely trying to do is to kind of create this idea of an individual presented by bureaucracy, by presented by war, presented by all of these things that really aren't in their own individual control. And by having this sporadic use of time and having this sporadic use of third person and multiple characters and not only multiple characters but multiple characters with so many almost psychotic and different personalities as the reader you're you're presented with a world that is in just constant chaos and freefall and i feel that's for me at least was one of the the key reasons that he adopted this kind of omnipresent structure Mm.
2: So I'd agree with Luke that by creating a narrator, you effectively make an indifferent narrator so you can present more stories fairly. But it creates a huge amount of difficulty in the fact you talk about the chaos and the fact the book goes everywhere. If it wasn't the first person, it would be a lot more chronological and it would follow Yossarian's maybe walk into insanity. Not not such as walk into insanity, but his story, I think, a lot better.
0: Mm. I think... It's two separate questions. Why he chose the third-person narrative and then why the structure of the book is as as it is. You know, I, I think with the structure, in terms of how messed up it is chronologically, you know, the first chapter you read about is Yserian in the hospital with a faked liver condition that's not quite jaundiced, <laughs> but, you know... Yeah, which it, could be anything... He's can... definitely moving towards jaundiced in that perfect little... Space where it's undiagnosable but still a problem, and this could be um, anywhere
2: from late 1943 to early 1944.
0: Uh, that first scene, couldn't it? Well, it's it's shown later in the book that it chronologically it happens more towards the middle of events. It's 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 you know whilst he's been there a little while, a lot of things have happened to him, and it's something you come back to later in the book. But I think I so I. I actually watched an interview with Heller about the chronology of the book, why he mixed it up, um, and it's a big reason why it's considered postmodernist if we want to call it that. <laughs> no, that's why it's a very dangerous. <laughs> <question>. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> Nobody <I don't> knows. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. <laughs> but he he had quite an interesting take on it. His his answers were a bit vague as well to be honest, considering he wrote the book, but one of the points he made is that he thinks a more linear story is more orientated towards making a book pleasurable to read. It makes it a much more enjoyable experience, a linear story. It you know, has the typical dramatic sequences leading to a catharsis or whatever it may be. But by chopping and changing, you create a lot more turbulence and emotions. And from his perspective, he said he thought that pleasure is only one facet of the emotional spectrum that people should experience whilst reading a book they should experience frustration confusion you know so this disgust is
2: the, this is the type of guy who gives shakespeare to 8 year olds
0: i i don't think so no because shakespeare follows quite a linear pattern as well generally but you I know, mean, because but his was theatre it had to make sense in in the sequence generally
2: to make it more challenging makes it more rewarding what you, is it, you yeah. know, like, is I think
0: no i think i think it's it's mixing a lot of emotions into one. and And I think something else he said that was quite interesting is he wanted to create this feeling that the past events were happening happening simultaneously to current events. And so it was this idea of history repeating itself of, you know, even though the deja vu has been had, it's it's still going to happen again.
2: The book does do that very well. That you feel that your Sarin is in this loop that keeps going on and keeps getting worse, and you have more and more sympathy for mm. him deteriorating.
1: Well, one thing I th- I feel that the book does well, and in I think Luke touched upon it with the idea of uh, having this frustration, having this heroism, having all of these angst. It kind of it's very symbolic with your own existence. You know, your own existence doesn't follow. Mm. Uh, a linear, linear route. It, it's always interchanged with things from the past floating up into the current, you know, relationships and ideas. And I feel like that's he's very much just trying to give a very real depiction of what life is like. And you know, life isn't a fairy tale story about a World War Two veteran killing everyone. It's actually much more about the nuances of the mess officer, <coughs> the nuances of the hierarchy that you're in the past previous experiences and it's all of that world interchanging and i think uh, what is another thing that should be pointed out you know it's a hell of an ambitious novel to write as your first novel i mean this is joseph heller's first novel mm. i believe and you know to really take on board 40 different characters it's, it's basically ripping up the rule book of how you write a, a classic novel mm. and saying you know here here you have it which i think hats off to the the guy
0: oh absolutely and i think it's so clever how so many of the things we're going to talk about and that we have talked about all weave into one. It all weaves into this mesh which I think is what makes it quite hard to untangle and you know it's a fact where even the order of the book means that events get talked about twice but then that's a common theme. Everything gets discussed twice. You have the man who sees things twice and it's that feeling of repetition. That's Um, one
2: of the reasons I found the book easier to read in the second half. It's because of this repetition of events even though it was going all over the place, it somehow started to make more sense. Like, when oh, he's talking about that. And you start to put that chronological order together in your head. But the first half, you're a bit lost sometimes, the timings. I- the, the only real indication you get of the timings is, in the first half, is the bomber command, the officers who's in, who are in charge of him, they always give a, a certain amount of missions you have to fly before you can fly home. And that number keeps going up. And for me... During the first half, that was my greatest indication of time going forward. Was that number?
1: What well, One thing mm. that the book really writes about is the con or the multiple concepts of déjà vu. And, you know, the, the chaplain, I think, goes into quite a lot of detail in actually explaining to the audience. And I never, I, I personally, when I first read it, I never really understood the significance. But I think when you start bringing it back to... The fact that events repeat twice, and I think Luke touched upon it with the idea that history is almost a repeat, and relationships are on a repeat, but maybe you, you guys have a better idea of that
0: no i'd I'd agree i think it's it's all about to me it it's the same reason why he so much of the book is also circular as well, you know characters constantly are using circular logic are using circular reasoning are having <laughs> circular discussions and it's it's not just a broad overriding theme it pervades every small interaction that happens in the book you know there's a part where he's talking to that a prostitute in Paris and he's asking her to marry him and she's saying I can't marry you because you're mad oh why am I mad because you want to marry me <laughs> and that happens throughout the book constantly and so it's, it's it is this feeling that everything's a circle that it's almost fatalistic that it's, it's it's a wave coming in yeah that it's it's predetermined that things will repeat that there is nothing you can do about it either because there's so many situations where ysarian as we learn through the very discombobulated chronology of the of the book has experienced in different forms before but yet kind of commits the same actions or is surprised that it's happening again and so i think it it, it really begs this question about you know, is is it is there any choice there? Is <laughs> you know, is is destiny in any of their hands?
1: <laughs> it almost felt that he was purposely writing it to make that there was no linear choice. You know, it was a book that was put out there that there wasn't a right, there wasn't a wrong. There's just series of spontaneous events, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I never felt there was a there was purposely not a distinct narrative that you could say. Well, things repeat twice because. You know, this is how wars generate, or this is how religion is. It was almost just that's just craziness, and that's insanity, mm. and that's what life is.
2: Do you think that circular nature was to encourage this feel of frustration? Because I felt it.
0: I I felt it a lot. I felt it. The the scene or, or section I felt it the most was when this character called Doctor Danica. Yeah. He's obviously one of the military doctors, and by mistake. The, he is declared dead by the military because they misidentify him as another individual in a plane who was shot down. Another doctor.
2: In order for him to get extra pay, he has to say does a certain amount of flight hours, and that's why he faked he was on that plane that crashed.
0: It's it's why he was. I think they say he was normally beyond that plane, but no. that instance he wasn't, and just wasn't documented. It, it's this kind of point about. that I'm sure we'll touch upon that his name was down on the roster but he didn't go
1: well I think he always lied so he never wanted to do any flights. so he always got the captains to put his name on the roster uh but anyway sorry but
0: it's it's that whole section where he's declared dead because of that and even though he is obviously walking around still alive people are saying to him oh you're dead by the way (laughs) very very odd to see you because you're dead and letters get sent to his wife. They ignore his letters that are sent in return. Every letter she sends him is marked, you know, cannot send, (laughs) killed in action, even though he's there on the base. And superior officers, when he tries to go and reason with them, uh, telling him, oh, if you turn up here again, I'll cremate you because you're a dead man. And it's, it's that kind of, that section in particular, I just felt, his frustration so much I feel that there's this juxtaposition within
1: the whole narration is you put an individual in a bureaucracy that doesn't care about you is fighting an, uh, a war effort that there is no central command it's all completely led by random and uh, non-appreciative logic mm. and you've got this individual kind of stuck in this massive war bureaucracy and everything that you know he, he makes the obvious, uh, he makes the observation, you know, is the enemy the Germans or is it the enemy, uh, the Americans who are sending me in to die? But, you know, but both both have the same object. But, you know, one is alleged the enemy and one is alleged the, you know, the allies.
2: The, the only suggestion I can give in that section is they're all saying you're dead as giving him a wink, wink, nudge, nudge is you're out of military service.
0: No, because he can't go home, though. Exactly, because and that's his why it's wife, too bizarre. Because his wife presumes he's dead and she starts receiving all these financial benefits from him being dead. And he can't prove he's alive. It, it, it talks about how he can't even claim food rations or clothing you know, surplus. He has to rely on other people to maintain just his basic life because he no longer exists in the system. Um but I think it is you know, is that's what's quite clever about the book and again bringing it back round to that kind of circular reasoning where there is no escape and and it's the whole title of the book and the title of the book and the narrative that derived from that created its own whole paradoxical situation that's now entered common parlance basically you, so
1: i'm i mean this is a question that luke raised and i think you touched on it there was this whole circular narrative and i'm just going to ha- open it to discussion you know, what what do we quintessentially think that circular narrative device is useful and I, as this is luke's question I'll, I'll let you go first
0: so i think one it's it's to create that feeling of frustration of inescapability The fact Catch-22 is a paradox where there is no escape. It's contradictory rules against each other. Either way you you go, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So I think it, it, it creates that sensation of hopelessness in the book. And also that feeling that there is no individual determination either. No matter what the individual does, it doesn't matter. You know, he can fly more missions. He can pretend to be insane. He can actually go insane, but it never matters because there's always a catch 22 around it, which ensures he does what somebody, an unknown power, wants him to do, whoever he is or whatever he's doing. So I think for me that, you know, that he could have just left it as, you know, a broad sense of the catch 22 or the circular, but by bringing it into every conversation, he he really draws out that this is, you know, not just an insanity that exists in particular situations, but everywhere, in a way.
2: For me, there's three reasons why the circular conversations go on. First of all, it's funny. So a lot of them are quite funny. Mm. Uh, some reasoning why, for example, they walk around with crab apples in their mouths, uh, their mouth, mouth, and his reasoning is because he wants to prove that he doesn't have conkers in his mouth. You know, there's just bizarre, bizarre reasoning that goes round. I won't give the whole conversation, because it'll take too long. But there's there's comedy. One of the other reasons is boredom. Circular reasoning and things happening again and again and again, that signifies boredom. Things not changing. And this whole book, it's all set... Most of it is just set on one island. They never change bases at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, my final reason... I've forgotten.
0: Carry on. <laughs> I think there no, you just made me think about how a lot of it, as you say, it's humorous. It's used in a very dark, comedic way a lot of the time. But what he does very well is actually pluck on the strings of reality with them as well. So yeah. you'll have a laugh about it. But then once you sit back and think about it, you realise how relatable it is. So there's one of the characters, I think it's Or, who loves shooting or loves skeet shooting because he hates it and so it makes the time go slower because he's bored. (laughs) And then that's that kind of circular reason. He loves it because he hates it. He hates it because he loves it. Um, Against Dunbar. Oh, it's a Dunbar, yeah. Um, and, And it's a very humorous kind of skewering of logic. But then you sit back and you think about how... You know how fleeting life can be and how true that statement is that if you're doing a lot or being excited time does fly and maybe there's some justification in his thought process that if you want to prolong life if you're that desperate for it why not you know strive after hmm. boredom and so there's quite a lot of deep intricacies in these hilarious circular concepts he creates.
2: I've just thought my third reason, it's a pretty damn obvious one. Circular conversations is a sign of insanity. Someone who repeats himself again and again and again, it's what we typically think of an insane mm. person. Which yeah. is
0: ironic because I don't think you ever hear or it's never mentioned Yasarian entering into his own circular conversation. He's always dealing with other peoples. But it was almost
1: you know taking this maybe to a more schizophrenic and it does feel you know there's so many characters who are I think the way that you'd have to describe it is they're almost shouting over each other there is no discussion it's just you know people like Hungry Joe or uh, anybody comes in it's it's almost just a a throng of narrative and that you have some pages which are
2: Mm. just
1: constant conversations of you know you said this no but I can't hear you and you know it goes back and back and
2: what I saw in the book is those circular conversations typically happen with three characters. So there's two characters in the circular conversation, and when you think it's going to reach the normality, a third character kicks in and then creates the unreality again, and it's nearly always three mm. characters.
1: But again, going back to... you know, the, I, I, th- I, I think I agree with all of you um, when I, I think it is... There's this pent-up frustration, but it's just such an unusual... I don't think I've ever read a book that's used... I mean, I suppose Catch-22 it literally centers on this one paradox and it just kind of fills up every page, but it feels like it's almost when I read it, I felt it was more of a comedian coming with skits uh, each time kind of thinking of a character and then enlarging that character and then filling it with more. I mean, just th- th- to, to touch on upon this book, it is hilarious. You know, there is so much depth to the humor. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's probably why, because I probably haven't read many comedy books and so maybe this type of satire is quite unfamiliar to me but in that sense it was yeah it was it was very interesting and in that it did bring out
0: such a different spiel yeah and I think you're completely right in saying it doesn't feel like a common thought sort of comedy in literature because I've never come across this kind of Unique form of dark humor in a book before that is so intensely woven into every element of the story. Um, I, I can't think of anything comparable. Which, which, you know, again is uh, means I give all the credence to Heller for it. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's not just. But it's a black eye. Luke has a red more. <laughs> 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 so what? Do, what do we think is what? What? What do each of us feel was? The funniest part of the book
2: for me, it still has going up to. I'll, I'll, I'll give more of the crab apple story. So, or who we find actually is reasonably sane, but he's making himself a bit insane at the beginning of the book. Uh, talks always about carrying around crab apples when he was a young boy in his cheeks uh, to try and prove that he didn't have conkers in his cheeks. So, he, what he used to do is he used to walk around with crab apples in his cheeks. And then hold conkers in his hands to prove that he didn't have conkers in his cheeks. And he is driving Hungry Joe absolutely mad. And Hungry Joe's like, so why have you got crab apples in your cheeks? And he's like, just to prove I don't have conkers in my cheeks. And he's driving Hungry Joe, this is another character, absolutely mad. And you learn by the end of the story, he's doing this just actually for his own enjoyment. But you think he's quite insane. For you, what, what was the most humorous part I it. love
1: the I think it's the opening maybe 50 pages or whatever and you get uh, is it Chief uh, Half Coat Chief White Coat anyway who's the Indian who um, Native American, right who is uh, within the squadron and um, it talks about how before the war started he was uh, his village and his family were uh, constantly, move, or constantly moved constantly used on. as uh, a tool to, by the oil companies to find new oil so as soon as they would set up their little uh, residence, the oil companies would come in and then start drilling for oil. And then every single time they would find new oil. And then the uh, Native Americans move on to another patch of land. And then the oil companies would come. And then it ends with... Um, I can't remember the exact ending, but it's, it's something like... He realised that there was no more space to move. because
2: no, no, The way he ended the story was the oil companies got so good at tracking where he was going... They used to go to the place before he got there. Oh, yeah. So he thought of going someplace and they were all companies, weren't they? And at that point, he thought, i would give up, I'll join the army. <laughs> 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 That's good, isn't it? That's good. I think for me, it's um,
0: so near the beginning of the book, is it Clevenger has that military court case? It's, it's not. I wouldn't call it a military court case, but maybe a military panel to investigate him. Yeah, because
2: he, he faints during a parade.
0: And there's so many funny elements to it. Like they say, oh, he was guilty, of course, because they found him guilty. Now they just needed to figure out what for. And they're constantly going back and forth. And they're saying, did you tell Yasarian that we could not find you guilty? No, sorry, I didn't. So what did you say? I said, you couldn't find me guilty. So you did say it. No, I didn't, sir. I said, you couldn't find me guilty because... And then there's a great bit in that where the scribe or whoever's taking minutes or whatever it is is writing jotting last line. down. Yeah. And the colonel says, tell me tell me the last thing I said. And he goes, tell me the last thing I said. He says, no, n- not that, you idiot. The last thing said. And he goes tell me the last thing I said he goes what are you talking about and he's like well that was the last thing I said
2: <laughs> you know that, that scene is the best out of the, ca- the recent uh, Catch-22 mini TV series that is the best scene and the TV series was directed by George Clooney and George Clooney is Captain Shyskov oh really, the guy that's oh, really? It, and it is the best scene is I, it any I good just, the TV series uh, I yeah, feel it like is, it's it such a
0: difficult book show yeah. of the TV series. The, the thing so that, difficult. that
2: put me off with watching this TV series is they changed the, some of the deaths round. They attributed oh, really characters yeah, with a couple, which is a bit confusing, of course, when I was trying to watch that to help myself with the pure number of characters and putting them into my head and giving them... you know.
1: What, was the TV series quite slapstick, or h- how did they go about no, it? It
2: was quite slapstick uh, towards the beginning... No, it was it was slapstick pretty much the whole way yeah. through. Uh, but, it, of course it got more serious as the missions went up. What was
1: the the rating of it was it was it highly rated on I have No idea. I well, What did you think of it like,
2: you know? It was, it was good. It was good. I I would watch it again in a few years time. Really? Uh,
1: is it just one season?
2: Yeah, just a six-part mini series. Uh, okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you
1: know, the, the, I watched kind of clips from the film
2: and yeah, so just for the, the uh, listeners there is a film which is back from the 1970s about this. Yeah, probably and around that time. And then there's also a mini TV series that was done a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, but the, the, the film, I don't know, because it's, I don't know, it it just didn't have that nuance that, you know, it was very slapstick. So you had, you know, planes crashing into each other and, you know, while they're having uh, you know conversations. And I don't know, it didn't, it just didn't it didn't do it for me I feel that the the way the book is narrated it's, is, a, it's a
2: 550 page book putting a 550 page book into a two hour film is going to be pretty difficult sure
1: but it's a 550 page book where very little happens in yeah. in, in, in the actual if you were going to say what, what happened in this book you could probably could sum, summarise the actual story they, they stay on this military base for three months it could be a very you know, succinct summary of maybe not three a months year. maybe a year sorry yeah. Uh and people die, but there isn't much. You know, we were talking about the 550-page book, where mm. not that much goes on in terms of actual non-character
2: about, development. So there's the film, which uh, is I think it's an hour and 50-minute film, and then there's the mini TV series, which is in total will be about four hours. I think the mini TV series brings in most of it, but of course the film will have to leave a lot a lot out. But I think the length of the book does quite
0: well in expressing a lot of the mundane situations and existence that especially maybe airmen went through and in the, the detachment as well and so you reach this point where the end at the end of the book or towards the end of the book the succession of actually quite serious events happen and quite horrifying events obviously he has is it arby when he goes to Rome. he goes a wall goes to rome to find natalie's Hall's little sister Arby rapes and murders somebody. He gets arrested. um, But whilst he's walking around Rome, he sees the true horrors of war on the ground. And then it's obviously put up to his big moral decision at the end as well. But that happens all quite quickly. I love how
1: the uh, chapter for that is called The Eternal City. And, you know, you Mm. feel... I don't know, when I read, at least when I had that image you know, of The Eternal City, it's kind of this very nostalgic, beautiful Rome... And then you're presented to this diabolical chaos. And mm. then you also, it kind of reminds me of the dialogue that they had with that old man uh, in the brothel. Yes. Where, you know, he he's basically saying, well, I was it's on happened. the side of the Nazis when they were here. I was on the side of the Allies when they were here. It's, and this is and why the
2: Italians will continue.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's that eternal city. It's like, we will change allegiance to whatever flag comes before us. And no matter what the chaos or no matter what the
0: the changes that might be brought onto the people he for me the the italian the older italian gentleman was probably one of the most interesting characters yeah. logical <laughs> one of the most logical but i think he obviously unveils a reality of world war 2 in terms of cheering for the nazis when they came in cheering for the allies because it, it's it's you know personally beneficial and he talks a lot as well about what is a country what what why do you want to die for a country oh it's you know it's it's nothing but but lines and you know pieces of you know of little demarcations on a map and anything worth dying for is also worth living for so why do you want to die for it and uh, you know this this comes into one of my big questions is what does the book say about
2: patriotism well, I'm going to go back to what was the point of fighting in the Second World War. And you look at Germany, death rate, 6% of the population by the end of the Second World War. Uh, UK, about one8 Russia, absolutely huge. But you've got countries like uh, the Netherlands, which still existed after the Second World War without such major amounts of death.
1: Netherlands was huge amounts of deaths to
2: the male population. To the male population? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Because,
1: take- I mean, they got completely ransacked If you think they, yeah, I think it was pretty hard for the Netherlands because they didn't have rashi. You know, they wouldn't have got proper food rations. Uh, At least one story I heard from, and this maybe this might be a load of rubbish, but uh, this is from a Dutch guy, and he told me that the average height of Dutch people uh, before the Second World War was akin to what the average height was in England, so about five foot eight. But by the end of the Second World War, uh, the height was about uh, six foot. And it kept going up because they'd been left. You know, it was very much a survival of the fittest culture, and so the people who were the biggest, uh, you know, did the best in this type of society. So it doesn't sound a completely rose-tinted. I've heard another. They are are the
0: tallest people on earth now as well. It's the tallest country on earth is the Dutch. So it it makes sense. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's
1: kind of because if you think about it, you know, why is Holland a country which is so close to all of us? A good four inches, maybe not four. Oh, it's but
2: obvious when the country floods, you've got to have your head above the
1: water. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, let's go back to Luke's question here. Um, and again, it's throwing it out there, but you know, what does the book say about patriotism? Uh, I think uh, listening to Luke and I, I think it, it it shows, at least from my perspective, you know, that patriotism isn't good for the individual person, uh, and the only only time it is good for the individual is if you're in a specific senior rank so i think the book does a good good job of highlighting the difference in perspective of your frontline soldier and your colonels because it makes it very clear uh the level of treatment that is uh provided by the army between majors uh between uh colonels i mean majors are still pretty well treated uh but then you go to jump to the colonel level and uh They're having the finest dinners, uh, and they're basically never getting to war. They're all talking about the bureaucracy of war, but never actually getting involved in actually flying the missions to die. And there's definitely this idea that patriotism only suits those people put in a certain strata of society.
0: I I think with this question, it's really important to remember the, the time it was written and the context it was written in, because... Joseph Heller started writing it in the late 1950s, published early 1960s. It was
1: 1961 published.
0: Yeah, and, and he himself said the book wasn't really about World War Two. It was more about American society at the time, but in contrast to World War Two. And so I think what you've got is obviously America after the Second World War, which was a uniquely noble war in many ways it, it could be defined as good versus evil you had fascism and the liberators it was very clear demarcations it, it, you know it could galvanize public support once america were involved it was you know even for the simplest person very easiest to un- easy to understand there was no ambiguity or grayness it was people fighting for an honorable cause but then by the time Heller started writing this America then had entered into a cold war period it got gotten involved in the Korean war things had become a lot murkier and a lot more ambiguous and i think that had taken away the veil of patriotism because patriotism was very easy to you know utilize in world war ii when you're fighting nazis and nazis are bad they're doing terrible things particularly with the revelations after world war Two of obviously what they were doing with the holocaust but then you enter into something like the korean war and by the time this was published vietnam was looking like it could potentially happen and a lot more questions start getting raised and therefore a lot more questions about your patriotic duties start getting raised so I, I think it's it's highlighting how for me in in the Post-war period, how much patriotism was subverted by the actions of the One U.S. Point government?
1: I would like to highlight here: you know, the U.S. were very uh, against going into both the First World War and the Second World War. Mm. You know, there, there was a huge amount, tremendous amount of the U.S. population who really didn't want to get involved in the Second World War. You know, they they often cited it as uh, the European War. Uh, it was only Pearl Harbor that really changed the. Mm. The dynamics of patriotism. So I, I don't know. I still think, it, even from Heller, who we've got to remember was uh, a Second World War pilot and who was based in Italy. I still think he would have had those inclinations and those thoughts because even maybe he might have been patriotic. There surely would have been, and there was, uh, a number of articles and press and people who would say, you know, this is America, we're a completely different continent, and we f- we represent America. I mean. You know, make America great again and all of this.
2: So what we've got to... I'm going to put it back in context again. So Yseren, who's the main character, is a bombardier, just like what the author was. And a bombardier's duty is they're on a B-25... Yseren's on a B-25 bomber and he's the guy at the very front of the plane and he's the guy that uses eyepiece and he drops the bombs at the opportune time. But the reality is, of most of these Italian missions he's doing, he's dropping a few bombs on what he thinks is a German position near an Italian city or near an Italian town. So most of the time, he isn't hitting the target, or his friends aren't hitting the target, they're hitting Italian civilians. And they're not hugely affecting the war effort. You know, for the Italians, uh, sorry, for the Germans, this is not the main front. This is a secondary front. So for him, this feeling of, I'm defeating the Germans, is somewhat lost. And that's why I think the pa- patriotism is gone. It's not like the Russians fighting the Germans.
0: No, I, I, I disagree. And, you know, I, I think genuinely, even for America, I know they came into World War II later, but once Pearl Harbour happened, that, that patriotic fervour really reached a fever pitch. It was like post 9-11. You know, it was full guns blazing into war... We want to destroy someone who has personally hurt us as as a nation. and so I think there was uh, you know a massive it, it was jingoism, it was like pure nationalistic patriotism running through the veins of of the country. and Heller himself said that Issaryan isn't based on him he he enjoyed his military service he he enjoyed what he did he th- he thought world war 2 was a great experience for him because he felt he was making a difference in the world and i think that's the key that he's making a comment about the way the world went after world war 2 in terms of that distinction between what side of the fence you're on good or evil just unjust and um, and and with that comes that question of well what are you fighting for, a country or an ideology or politics?
1: The the only thing I would draw back in is the circular narrative, and I feel that you touched on. I think you are correct in that it's a series of events repeating themselves, and I think that is his comment on history. Mm. Is you know the the fervor or the patriotism, and then so an empire. It begins with the idea that it needs to be patriotic in order to secure its standing in the world, and then that patriotism breeds into something much more and it becomes more akin to capitalism in that it's trying to create a war economy that dominates uh, the seas with you know their ability to trade. Mm. I feel almost if we kind of paralleled it to the british empire it 's probably very similar you know Britain probably started its empire through wanting to salvage its own island you know with spanish invasion and all of these other different types of attacking forces and then you know a hundred years later it's it's not just dominated its own little patch of water it's now moving on to the bigger and more grander scale Mm. i wonder if that is this circular narrative is more it's very much bringing in the ideas of of history and how empires and tides they all repeat
0: i i actually agree with elliot in a way i think He's saying I agree with you because I think Heller would never deny the absurdity of war, no matter the war. I think probably for him and for many people, World War Two glazed over that because of the distinction, but the absurdity of war persists, really. The the you know, it never it never really makes sense. It's dysfunctional, functional, nonsensical never what you expect it to be. Yeah.
1: A fly on the wall would still find it, or an alien coming into World War Two or coming yeah. into the Vietnam War would still find it a mad thing that people are going... You know, individuals are... My dad actually told quite a funny story and he uh, he was, you know, grew up in Bradford and on quite a, you know, council state in Bradford. And uh, he always found it quite funny that the, um, the people in the local pub, uh, this was like 1970s, would say, oh you know, what if the Russians invaded? Like, we've got to stop this. And, you know, his perspective is like, what do you have that they're going to come and take? Like, you know, you <laughs> you have your, you know, your Guinness or your pint and, you, you know, your your small accommodation. Do you really think the Russians are the, going to come and target you or they're going to target the people who have all the money? And, and you know, it's that interesting
0: yeah. idea. So I suppose the question almost becomes, maybe I'm, I'm I'm labouring under a bit of a misapprehension here, but is it a case where Heller thinks that patriotism, in its very concept, is absurd? Or do you think he's making a point that patriotism is just a bit misguided in its form? And it it has a purpose, but it's just not taken up the right evolution, almost.
1: I I feel he writes in a style that is morally nebulous. I mean, this Mm. is... Like his... uh, The... the, uh, In some of the books, he talks about how he wrote characters that are like God. He wrote characters that are like atheists. He wrote characters that are like the devil. And I feel like he purposely goes out of his way to make sure that the audience isn't presented with this is the depiction of hell or this is the depiction of heaven or this is the it's everything is this is one It could happen. It could be like this. It could be better. It could be worse.
2: What I'd argue is with his narrating type, it could be okay for, for example, an American soldier going into Afghanistan where he is personally not invested. These Afghanist, uh, you know, Afghan Taliban he's fighting against have never hurt his own family or people he knows. Uh, So for those sort of conflicts, I do agree with this sort of narrative, but he's never touching. For example, Russians against Germans, that's something completely different.
1: No, but he does, I oh, mean, y- Yosa- also. Sorry, Yusarian does do a very significant bombing of Bologna where he, he wins an award, and that probably would have been very important to block that bridge in order for them to invade into Italy. So I still think they are touching on very important parts of World War Two, at least from the American dimension. Uh, and this was the front they were, before D-Day, this was the front that but they were really pushing on. In, yeah. So, I think the idea that it's. I don't think uh, Heller would have cared. He would have written the exact same. If, if he'd been a Russian in the Russian army, I think he'd have written obviously a different novel, but I think it would have included this idea of war bureaucracy and multi layered factors in presenting a narrative. I don't think it would have been a patriotic narrative if he'd written it from anybody else's perspective.
2: What I found remarkable about the novel is actually the lack of times he mentions uh, the Germans. In fact, I don't think he ever mentions Hitler once and throughout the whole novel. Does he?
1: This is one for Will.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think he does. But
0: he does mention the Germans. Yeah. He does mention the Germans. But that's the whole point of Viserion, isn't it? Where he equates the Germans' desire to kill him... With senior command, his senior commands, you know, insistence on him going on what he considers suicidal missions. So to him, the the equitable, the 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 kind of, you know, the death situations he's being put in, the responsibilities shared between both sides. Um, so that's why I feel like he never talks about them a lot because to him there is no enemy, ally. It's everyone's out to get him, whoever they are. um
1: I think this brings us nicely to our next question. And that is uh, Is Catch 22 a comic novel or a story of morality? I think the reason I. I, This is one of my questions. And the reason I asked this was because I feel great comedy is both funny and insightful. And poignant. Yeah, it, it gives. That is what comedy really is. You know, some people probably like Michael McIntyre, but I just find him. Horrendous as a comedian because he does this very boring middle of the road comedy about nothing, and for me that's not what comedy about is about. Comedy is about touching really important political social issues and giving a perspective on them. I feel that's what this book is so adept at doing.
2: For me, comedy it's main it's a very good you know World War Two as in all wars are very depressing to be able to make a comedy out of it. Although poignant the whole way through, hats off to him. And I, I mainly look at it as black comedy. I think it's really difficult because I think
0: <laughs> so much comedy is kind of seeded in the questions about morality as well.
1: There were so many aspects of this that were very akin to Black Blackadder. Mm. Uh, in you know the the final scene in World War One, I. I can't remember the name of the series, but there's it, a lot of the scenes almost were kind of word for word uh, dialogue in that you had. Majors, you had commanders who were just completely inept and hopeless. And then you had the frontline soldiers who were about to go over the trenches and die.
0: So what I found really interesting while just doing a bit of research on this book is I, I came across a YouTube video where back in the 70s, maybe, um, Heller did an interview at an Air Force base where he was interviewed by air commanders I mean, they are just putting all the adoration on him they can. They think it's a fantastic book. But when you go down into the comments, there's so many people talking about, from, you know, Air Military Service, about the characters in his book who reminded them (laughs) of characters they actually came across. And the most common one was Major, 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 Major. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So many of them in the comments were talking about how he was the individual that reminded them the most of officers they'd come across
2: Major 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 Was Major. the character Major, <laughs> So my apologies <laughs> Was the, c- the character I actually found the most interesting So a bit of backdrop to Major 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 <laughs> Major Major. <laughs> it's just Major Major saying. <laughs> his, ori- his original name was Major. First name Major Second name Major, last name Major This is all due to his dad na- Putting his first name as Major And the second name as Major But anyways, due to an admin error, he gets the rank of Major. But he is a very timid chap who doesn't actually want this rank and sort of does everything he can to escape it once he gets it. And successfully, he just keeps his rank going. Uh, Which highlights two things for me. It first of all highlights um, the fact that you can get away in the military of being quite incompetent and continuing. But also, secondly it can uh, it highlights the fact that e- even though you might feel you're completely incompetent and if you are put into a senior position for some people they can never they can never achieve like a lot of people if you took them off the street and you said you're now a manager some of them would take it up and actually be able to succeed I, but I a lot the, of them wouldn't the
1: the the difficulty major 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 Uh, really struggles with is that disconnect between he just wants to fit in and be a normal dude and they are not allowing him to be on the same hierarchy as the common man and I think he has a real trouble accepting that, I mean he, he talks about the love that he had finally being accepted when he was just a normal rank
2: he's a very just an academic fellow, quite a bit autistic
1: and he then gets put into this specific role and Yeah, absolutely hates it because now the men think he is above them, even though he... And and I think that's a... You feel sorry for him.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of... I feel sorry for him because he's just a victim of the kind of bureaucracy and dysfunctionality we all come across in life. Of course, a computer picked him out because his name was Major, (laughs) but you, you have it in normal life where there's somebody at your company who makes a senior position just because they've been there 20 years. I,
1: lo- I love how this... Even the computer is having a joke. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's
1: so bureaucratic that even the computers are like, this is just... This is great fun.
2: And it's due to another bureaucratic error that no one ever challenges it. Because, of course, if they start challenging yeah. rank, <laughs> then they're challenging themselves, so they can never yeah. challenge it.
0: But then, again, there's a part of the book where... ...in this circular, non-logical fashion... ...one of the characters is talking to another... ...who's a lower rank than him... But he's saying, just because I'm a lower rank than you doesn't mean I'm not your commanding officer. And the other chap goes, of course, sir, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it kind of just points out the whole redundancy of the hierarchy. You know, well, why do people have these ranks? What, what what right do they really have? What value are they really providing? S-
2: something I should mention is every single person on one of these bombers is technically an officer.
1: Interesting in the whole rank, at least as it goes into more senior echelons, uh... Is you know the whole actual consideration of the war, the whole consideration of the men is completely lost. The only thing they're chasing is rank, and yeah, I think that's a, a solid criticism on hierarchy, isn't it? Absolutely. That, mm. that that's in- what I
0: mean. It, it's about he just completely subverts that concept of status being deserved. You know, yeah, which I think we've back when he was writing it it would have been much more profound now uh, the modern generation realizes it more and more you know we talk about how the CEOs don't do what <laughs> they should be doing or acting how they should be doing to justify their position but back in the 60s and the 50s you didn't challenge it you. was assumed that because someone had a particular position they deserved it <laughs> And we're back.
1: Uh, that was a, a nice interlude. Uh, so we'll go to the very important question of the evening: How is the, wi- whiskey, the Winky,
0: <laughs> the whiskey <laughs> being re- received? <laughs> well, the Winky is very small, but the whiskey, <laughs> is, <laughs> the whiskey is making me feel better about it. <laughs> uh,
2: for myself, um, it's a very easy going whiskey. I've enjoyed drinking it throughout the night but for me it's not very characteristic it's uh, it's quite it's quite bland actually
1: yeah there's no defining characteristic i mean always bring it back to the smokehead because that really is where our you know <laughs> paradigm uh, shifts to and you know the, the smokehead is is one as we keep talking about it really left a long lasting impression however if you had the choice of drinking this for a casual you know whiskey at the bar would you prefer this or the smokehead
2: Oh, oh, this one.
0: Yeah, definitely this. I mean, to me, this has got a little bit of bitterness, but also a little bit of sweetness, and it and it's still quite smooth. The smokehead was just horrific. It was, it was like we we're amateur boxers, and suddenly <laughs> we got a fight with Mike Tyson. Yeah, that that was how I felt drinking yeah, this smokehead, and my, and my hands
2: were tied up. <laughs> <laughs> will not make much difference. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> but I think for this, it's. I don't know how to describe it, but it's got almost a little bit too much sickliness to it for me.
1: Yeah, I, I, it doesn't feel, again... It It's doesn't not punchy feel, in a certain way. Yeah, it, it's just, it's non-definitive, isn't it? it? It it It's kind of your average table wine, if mm. you bring it to a wine context. It doesn't, there's nothing that you look, you, you don't get the taste and you think, wow, that's really distinct. It's just like a nice, easy going, mm. not and too if, much.
0: We compare it to what was for me the best whiskey we've had, the Penderin. That had, and again, I'm talking about it in a very unsophisticated way, and the fact I don't know anything about whiskey.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, how dare you, Luke? You uh, yeah. betrayed oh, our, our limited knowledge on nothing.
0: I mean, we went to that whiskey college for three years. <laughs> <laughs> it was 15
1: for me, I never passed. <laughs> 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 I... When's it when you were young at school? <laughs> I'm but... seventy-five now, Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> at least that's my liver's age.
0: <laughs> I moved on to the brandy course now, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that had a, a richness and a depth and and something a bit more. I don't want to say creamy because that's got weird connotations about it. But but the smoothness with that felt a lot more satisfying. Where this the smoothness feels a lot more bland. You know what we should do? We should,
1: we sh- when we get the the mass amounts of audience <laughs> and revenue, we should round up all the whiskies that we've consumed and then do a taste-off. That would be a, yeah... I mean, there's only been four so far, so... <laughs> yeah, but we need Bo- to drink all four bottles. Yeah. <laughs> we're still
2: talking 70 centiliters per bottle. Yeah, well, we're talking about the Christmas edition.
1: <laughs> okay, uh... Moving swiftly on uh, To our next question of the evening And uh, this is Discuss how the novel can be described As a struggle between the individual And an institution Does anyone want to kick us off on this one?
0: Very very big question
1: Oh it's a huge question I think it's, it's perfectly dropped Just before another tasting moment mm, Just so the big ideas
0: Can ruminate in the very Abstract skulls of ours <laughs> I, I feel like I'm hitting, hitting a flow with this question. I, I think it really ties into the idea of what is predetermined and what is up to individual choice. And I think throughout the entire novel, it's clear that all of the large choices, or even the small choices, are out of the hands of the characters... And even the things that seem to happen by Hapchant are, in a way, dictated by some higher power, by the choices they make, by the barriers they put in place. And that's why, at the end, the decision Yasarian makes to reject the offer he's made to become a major, to go home, is such a big decision. It's, it's why it concludes the book very can, well. Can you
2: give a bit more backdrop to this, just so the listeners know?
0: So, after Isarian is arrested in Rome for going AWOL, he is offered a ticket home on the basis that when he gets home, he speaks only positively of the military, that he basically becomes this PR vocal front, and in exchange he... Obviously, gets the chance to go home, but he will be made a major, and he will be one of one of the boys. Essentially, he'll be he'll be part of the inner circle, and he won't have to put himself in danger anymore. And initially, he accepts the offer, despite some deliberation. He accepts it quite gladly. Immediately afterwards, he is grievously injured by a woman who he comes across earlier in the novel, Nateley's whore. And then in hospital, afterwards, he makes the decision to refuse the offer. And it's the first time where his personal choice actually has implications, where he can actually decide his own fate.
2: Yeah, so before his personal choices were, oh, I'm going to hospitalise myself. They're not directly going against authority, and this is the first time he's really...
0: But the thing is, even when he makes the choice to hospitalise himself, he's always brought back to the front yeah there is never an escape. there is never anything he can do which he's delaying will, which which kind of fulfills his personal desire. He has no avenue to fulfill his personal desire or you know his personal objective and that's the first time in the book he does almost or that he can and so for me, the entire book up to that point is about how all the power is out of his hands how he is ostracized from any decision-making about his own life and he is living this kind of fatalistic destiny almost.
1: With this question I think it really needs to be broken down to us as the reader. Who do we conceptualize as the individual and who do we conceptualize as the, uh, the institution? And that I think is a really interesting question because ultimately all of them are individuals. But we form a very much a linear narrative that us as the individual, at least for me reading it, was always the officers or the lowest class and the institution was represented by Colonel Kafka or Colonel Korn. And, you know, because there's no real, you wouldn't say that there is a a disconnect between the people who administer decisions and a governing body. It's very much the individuals themselves. And it's interesting that he, he makes this disconnect just through hierarchy. And personal experience, rather than actually there being a bureaucracy on top of, of individuals. It's very much it's the individual very, interaction.
2: Very simplistic way of separating them is the institution, and the people that are not flying the planes, the people who are flying the planes, are the individuals.
1: But the institution and the individuals are the same. That's the interesting question. Is it's just how hierarchy and bureaucracy manipulate individuals, gives them a completely different role within the institution.
2: Yeah, which is something that Major, Major, Major can never do.
1: Well, I mean, he's given a role, but uh, he's he's the quintessential example of this. He's somebody who's aligned with the lower officers, and yet the institution has made him who he is,
0: just through sporadic force. I think to kind of codify this a little bit, everyone, you know, back then and now, to some degree, exists as part of an institution in some form or another. Your work is some kind of institution. The government is some kind of institution. Your family is some kind of institution. But the question is, how much personal choice do you have within that institution?
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that is... When we look at many other books, everyone comes from different institutions. It would be the standard narrative. You have religion, you have uh, politics, you have all of these different quintessential institutions. Well... We are very much presented with a one mould. Maybe it is a narrative on to, I don't know, maybe that's a bit abstract, but uh, you know, the chaplain is a military man who's synonymous with religion. You have colonels who are synonymous with hierarchy. You have Milo, who, uh, Milo needs a bit of describing, but he would be what you would personify as capitalism and trade and, and market forces. And you have all of them under this umbrella organisation of the military. But I still think it's it's interesting to look at the fact that where does the individual, and from the British tradition, or at least the, very much the liberal tradition, everyone thinks of the individual as a free spirit or able to make their own decisions. But within this institution, there is no freedom to decide. Okay. There is only freedom to follow.
2: I've just thought of the new, what I as the new division between individualism and what you could say what was the other part uh institution institution individualism is of course the individual making their choice but institutionalism is how much you allow them to make that choice so with the officers for example colonel black goes on a anti-communist uh drive at one point and he's just allowed to continue and continue with this and put, put this perspective he Trying to discredit major, major, major makes everyone sign allegiance at every single point, even if they have to get their rations from the stores, or even if they have to eat in the canteen, they have to sign this allegiance. And it's just showing bureaucracy to a ridiculous level. And this is how one individual can allow themselves to become an individual, which is allowed at senior ranks. And one institution getting involved is when someone of a senior rank uses their individualism. So basically, individualism is allowed the more senior you get, the more junior you are, the less individualism you get. I would
1: disagree with this, because I would say that, uh, as we touched on before, the colonels, for example, were just chasing hierarchy. And it was the institution that was forcing them to slide up this slippery slope. And in fact, their decision-making was completely narrated by the institution that they're in. And not about their own individualism. Because the individualism wouldn't just. It, there, was, there, there was
0: more inclination to themselves than just to slide up.
2: No, 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 no. I'm sorry, Luke.
0: I was going to agree with Elliot that I disagree with you, but for different reasons. So for me, every character in this is running counterintuitive to the institutional ideals even at the more senior end, even at the more junior end. So you have, obviously, Isarian, who's not following the you know military protocol, what's expected of him in a patriotic sense either, or what is expected of him in a religious sense, but he's expressing his own individualism. That's the obvious one. But then you get to other characters as well. Colonel Cathcart, the institution of the military wants to reward men for promotion based on their military successes. Colonel Kafka is trying to manipulate that system for his own individual benefit. He's, he's trying to play the institution against itself. And the same in a different way for the chaplain. The chaplain is defying the institution of religion by seeing the hypocrisy and the way religion is used and the kind of almost insignificance religion holds. And so for me, in a way, even though you could feel like institutionalism has this overarching control, every character within it is defying the institutional expectations. They're expressing their individualism to the ninth degree. And and ultimately, in many ways, a lot of them maybe don't get what they want, but they're also not punished by this kind of hegemonic, controlling beast that you'd call an institution or an overarching ideology.
2: Yeah, everyone's trying to play the system.
0: Everyone's trying to play the system and so I think, again, maybe there's a very clever element to the book that you could look at it as the absolute power of bureaucracy, of government, of military, which all fits into the notion of the institution, but actually each individual character maintains and persists with individual expression in their own ways.
1: Yeah, I I feel with this again, it goes back to what makes an institution, it's made up of uh, enterprise of individuals, Mm. and I think when you always analyse society, you give it this kind of fictional head that society is led in this one way, or bureaucracy is led in a certain way. But I think what Heller does brilliantly is actually he illustrates how individuals curate and formulate a bureaucracy. And there is no linear abstract notion of what the bureaucracy is derived from. It's a formulation of loads of ideas presented by people who can't actually implement those ideas. So they might have good notions of, you know, we need to win this war. But when you actually give it to the individual... Of such a simple message, they they go into so many different abstractions, and it it becomes this unwieldy, non-concise madness. And you just get you know you get individuals being put to the fore of that.
2: Okay, let me give you a basic example of this. So the institution is the guidebook that uh, Captain Shiverskov uses to guide his troops on how to march and then he interprets it a certain way, and that is as the individual. So the institution is just a set of rules, but the reality is everyone as individuals is interpreting these in different ways, and exploiting it.
1: Yeah, or exploiting it, or condo... Like, they they can either do both ways. They either exploit it, or they actually
0: uh, endorse it. What comes to mind for me is... So there's a book by Joseph Conrad called Secret Agent, and within that book, the secret agent, the titular character, meets a, a bomb maker who talks to him about his countercultural views. You know, the secret agent wants to destroy society, he wants a revolution, he wants things to change drastically. And the bomb maker explains to him that in order to feel so adverse to society, you need to be part of it to begin with. And I think that feeds into this in a way. Every individual who is trying to counter the institution, is obviously part of the institution. And the institution itself has a self perpetuating hypocrisy about it as well. There's a part where Usarian is marching around with his gun on backwards and, I think, his tops off in the most ludicrous fashion, back and forth, back and forth, and they talk about how... He's jeopardising our notions of freedom <laughs> and, and independence by expressing freedom and independence.
2: Luke, this brings me on to my final question, and this is with Usarian. Do you think he's ever faking his insanity towards the second half of the book? So what you're talking about there was him walking around naked with his gun on the mm. back of his, you know, the gun behind him. And there's a couple of occasions where he gets naked after missions. Um, do you think he's faking it in try, in order to try and get himself out?
1: I, I don't think he's ever faking it. I think that's the general repercussion of... So, giving a bit of backstory to your Sarian, The time and the moment is you've so got... important Sorry,
2: that... you've also got to explain what Catch-22 is, because none of us have done that yet.
1: So let me just give the to your question about the moment that you're discussing when he turns uh, insane... It features this very prominent moment, which uh, you have uh, Snowden, who's, uh, new uh, pilot. who's a new pilot in, in the war effort. And uh, they're going over uh, to do a mission, and they get in a particularly precarious scenario. And Yossarian, at the start of the scene, is wrapping his leg because it's been uh, hit by a bullet. And you know completes the wrap, and it seems to be ending on a positive. And then Yossarian looks at his shirt, and then takes his shirt off, and Snowden's guts and everything in his body falls out into Yossarian's arms. And I think that's such a poignant moment because you've you've got to put yourself into the the shoes of this character. You know, you've you've been heroic, you've been patriotic, you've done everything that the has told you to, and then you have such a horrendous disgusting moment of just where somebody who's your friend a new new person a new member to this war institution and they are bleeding out and their guts are falling into your arms and i think for me that's the question you know is it that moment that makes you insane
0: or was it your own insanity i i think that is the pivotal moment that changes Yusarian's perception of the war and, and what he's doing. It's when his paranoia starts, it's when his fear of death really becomes a lot more poignant. And I think it's important to mention as well, out of all the events and characters in the book that Heller has said he drew upon real life experiences for a lot of them are very tenuous you know, Usarian's apparently a kind of pick a mix of different people he met during the war, um, he himself enjoyed his war experience um, some of it is from stories he heard from other airmen, but apparently the death of Snowden was from personal experience so I think there's a lot of individual investment there from Heller in terms of this the, took the, a lot the serious me. impact that had on usarian's mental state and and his perception but on, on of
1: anybody's mental state i you know how, how for us in peaceful times i don't think any of us can fathom having a friend or even no. just a, a personal well, acquaintance that's, that's the,
0: the, what i was just telling Matthew
1: about, so... No, no I, I know, Hela, this is the only experience yeah, in the book yeah. where Hela is synonymous with his own personal experience.
2: The reason I say this is when uh, Yerserian first goes into the military, the reason he cho- chooses to be a bombardier is it's got one of the longest periods of training, and his theory is it's got a six-month one-year training, and by that time, the war will basically be over. Mm. And so he's always trying to get himself out of the war, even before Do,
1: do we know, the war. Do we know... See, I always think the there's that moment that Yossarian just switches, and so before this, he was patriotic. He was a massive believer, and then everything after that, he's he's become a different being. So every reason that he initially got into the war has now been, you know, fragmented or changed into why he got originally got into it. Because I mean, if you were presented into that your own circumstance, you know, why did you draft yourself into a war? You and then you realise how horrific it was you would always look at the th- reasons why well I only, this was my only option the, the, this was the actual reason I think it's always backward logic
2: when was he a patriot in the beginning of the book he was He was
1: so, he was heroic I mean he did a double so his he, his first bombing mission didn't succeed and so he went back, bombed the bridge again even
0: though there would have been the, mm. double the amount of flak. it's why he got made a captain it was because of that
2: But don't you think that was just so they wouldn't do that mission again?
0: No, I I, I disagree. I think the death of Snowden was was a fracture point for him between the viewpoint and person he was before and the person he became. And I think what's really difficult or challenging about trying to discern whether he was insane or sane or you know what what end of the spectrum he was on and what makes it really nebulous is he can never really live up to the insanity around him no matter how insane he actually potentially is the insanity around him by contrast just makes normalizes him in many yeah. ways, you know, even at the beginning, or talking, we know or is obviously pretending, but talking about the crab apples and the conkers in the mouth. And yeah. every situation he comes across is so absurd that there's no reference point to judge his insanity. But even just taking or as an example, I mean, or
1: has pretended to be absurd mm. in order to fit in <laughs> with the bunch of absolute maniacs that were presented. I mean, you've got Hungry Joe, who's just... The craziest character. I mean, his little uh, camera that he takes out every time he sees a naked woman. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. so farcical. Well,
2: one of the funny thing, paradoxes I find about Hangry, Hungry Joe is Hungry Joe is always having these nightmares. where He's screaming about uh, yeah. you know, death and those sort of things. But when he is about to do a mission, he doesn't have these nightmares. It's only when he thinks he's about to get off those missions and he's done his quota, the Nightmares return. Well,
1: I almost think that the Nightmares are uh, more about what he's actually done during the war. I think, at this least is, this is my view on it, Was it was the killings and the hor- horrific acts the bombers would do. I mean, you've only got to think of Dresden, where in a single night they yeah. lit up 300,000 people. Also, maybe it's less, but I, it, I think it was around that number. And I think if you were taking that as an individual... And you realised how many people, how many kids, how many children you'd incinerated in your one mission.
2: Yeah, so when your mind's on the mission, you're okay. But when you actually take a step back to think about it, that's where the nightmares come.
1: Yeah. Hmm. I, d- I think if you look at Vietnam War, that probably yeah, absolutely. 100%. absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, we speak about this not having any idea what it's like to be in a war scenario.
0: Yeah, we're so alienated from the... Plethora of emotions you probably feel being a soldier. Uh... I mean,
1: the closest we come is Call of Duty, uh, yeah, where you know you're, you've got infinite lives, you're, you're literally about your kill to death ratio.
2: <coughs> yeah, you know, there is, which for me is not good. <laughs> which makes me emotional in fact in fact when your
1: teammates die around you you start shouting at them <laughs> yeah I mean it's it, yeah. a very different
2: thing nowadays God,
0: God forbid if millennials have to ever go to war yeah.
1: you died mm-hmm. yeah where's my respawn yeah <laughs> that that should be so your, that is, that is that, that's definitely on my tomb where's my respawn <laughs> where's the space bar <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay i think that draws us nicely to a conclusion of tonight's discussion uh so i think that really we've got to end up just rating this book uh, i think we decided that we would each do a uh one to ten review and then we'd uh put ours together and then we'd be able to catalog our both our uh book and our whiskey going forward mm.
0: So should I uh, start off? So the uh, the book is a uh, it's quite a tricky one because I'm trying to put it in relative position to the others we've read. But I think due to its innovative nature, I've never read a book like it. I've never come across a book with the you know, humorous, uh, you know, circular logic, the circular reasoning, the very poignant points about life, about war, about the absurdity of the world we live in that pervades every facet of our existence. I think I've got a rate it 9 out of 10.
1: I don't think I can go as far to give it a 9. I I, I think for its individuality, I think that's characteristic that you really have to congratulate this book for because for somebody especially your first book I I couldn't even imagine being as brave as Hella was to think I'm this is my first time novel I'm really going to a not write a short book I'm gonna write a 550 page book include all these characters I think that that's well if, if it's not genius it's it's something it's a special characteristic the only thing for me personally, and this is genius side, it, I, I felt it it was a bit too convoluted. I know that that's the style, I know that's, but for me to get to a nine or an eight, I, I think it, it isn't what I'm after specifically in a book. So I think this book is a perfect category for me to give it a seven.
2: I'm exactly the same, seven. Uh, it was a good book, I enjoyed a lot of the conversations that I found it funny, but for me the book was far too long. You could have acts a hell of a lot of the characters, had a lot of the underlying meanings still go through the books, and still be as poignant. And for that reason, yeah, seven.
1: Okay, uh, now we move on to the whiskey of tonight. Matthew, do you want to kick us off?
2: I'm going for a uh, six out of ten. Very easy drink whiskey, but for me, nothing special.
0: I would completely agree. The exact points Matthew's made. Easy to drink, but very undefined no, nothing special about it
1: I think we for one time all agree and I'm
0: gonna
1: uh... change my vote 6.1 <laughs> 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 okay well wow I think that's the first time we've ever ever agreed uh, au revoir good night